Welcome to the London Business School podcast series, The Reality of Artificial Intelligence. How are businesses using AI today? I am Julian Birkinshaw, Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at London Business School, and I'm the host of this series where we discuss the practical applications of AI in the workplace and in society. Today, we are putting the spotlight on autonomous driving, and more specifically, the technology that is making driverless cars a reality. How does this technology work? How is it developing? What are the implications for businesses, consumers, and society? Joining me to discuss these meaty issues are Richard Jinks, Vice President Commercial at Oxbotica, a leading autonomous vehicle, or AV, software company, and Michael Jacobides, a professor at London Business School and a leading expert on the evolution of business ecosystems. First, Richard, tell us a little bit about Oxbotica. Many of our listeners have not heard of your company. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, Oxbotica are a, a software company. Our software is there to help vehicles do more than they do today. So that's our raison d'etre in life. We're five years old. We're born out of Oxford University. And our heritage goes back some 15 years of research and development into the technology, founded by two professors. And we're working with organisations to about in simulating our technology into their hardware to make vehicles move by themselves. So your software is a key component in the development of driverless vehicles. And obviously those vehicles have various hardware pieces as well. Just tell us a little bit more about what your software is actually doing? Which part of the, you know, of the word of autonomous driving are you, are you... So we have two main strands of what we do. We have the brain on the vehicle. And so that brain on the vehicle has got to answer three key questions. So when we think about autonomous vehicles and vehicles driving themselves in the future, there's three key questions that have to be answered. Where am I in the world? So localization, and that's one of the things we do. What's around me? So how do we see perception? What are things around us? And then when you've got know where you are, what's around you, you've got to plan what you do. So that brain on the vehicle answers those three questions, which enables the vehicle to drive safely. And then it connects through our cloud system, which talks to all the other vehicles. Got it. And location sounds easy to me. I mean, we all have GPS systems nowadays, but you've got these cameras, you know, and we've seen these things in the streets. And they are somehow taking the world out there and turning this into an understanding, a representation of reality. Can you give us any insights into how that works? Because it just boggles my mind. So first of all, I'm going to challenge the point about okay. knowing where you are is okay. easy. Okay. okay. So when we talk about vehicles, we're not just talking about vehicles on the road. Okay. So we're talking about any vehicle. And we'll talk more about this as we talk about business models later. But you think about if you're in a mine, if you're in a warehouse, you're inside, there is no GPS, okay? Ah. So the art of localization and knowing where you are in the world goes way beyond okay. using GPS. And I might add, some of the best GPS systems in the world may be not accurate enough to get you around an island when there's somebody else there as well when you're driving. So our localization relies on, we have sensors on the vehicle, we have cameras, we have LIDAR, we have radar. So we all have a set of sensors that enable us to understand where we are in the world through our experiences. And Michael, let me bring you in, because obviously we've been talking about driverless cars forever. I mean, it's been a staple of science fiction. It's only the last decade, I'm going to say, when we've gone from science fiction to possible to inevitable. I mean, it is now, it's a simply a matter of years, I guess, before these things are on our streets, and we'll get to that. But what has allowed this to happen? What has happened in the world of artificial intelligence technology 
that has made it possible for this vision to become a reality. So the first thing is that this is part of a much broader evolution. And if you think about artificial intelligence or machine learning, essentially this computational statistics. Right. And what has changed is partly our understanding, but also massively our computational power. The ability that we have to find the data, to create the associations, to give responses in uh, less than nanoseconds has meant that things that were impractical a very short while ago are possible now. There's other technologies that are important, and you heard some of them mentioned. They are technologies of communication, whether this is LIDAR, whether this uses all kinds of other real-time sensing and responding that we did not have a few years ago. So it is the confluence of these technologies which means that something that perhaps would have been a high-end system somewhere but too slow to be practical, all of a sudden is at the cusp of being able to transform. Now, what's interesting is not just that technology is maturing. We have seen that in a number of ways. The last century is full of all of these instances. What I think is interesting is that you see traditional sectors that feel that they are being disrupted mm -hmm. as a result of the fact that technology is there. So that creates a really major challenge for existing players in a broad number of sectors. Good, thank you. And we're going to come to some of those bigger implications in a minute. But Richard, did you want to get on on the... Yeah, I just, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, one of the key drivers is that people now absolutely believe this is going to happen. There's a belief that's going to happen, and you can see that by the investment community and the amount of money that's been invested in, in this technology. But I have no doubt about it, and we have no doubt about it, that it is on the agenda of most boards agendas when they're looking about moving people and things around the world. So be as specific as you possibly can in, the, in terms of how close to reality is this. How good are these autonomous vehicles today and when will we actually see them on the streets of London or on the... Let me, let me take a stab here because I think that the applications that we're going to see in terms of autonomous driving are not simply that you're going to have the car with zero interaction from the driver. That is far away. We've got some very difficult things to do. The AI specialists speak about the massive problem of a left turn. Why? Because you've got to negotiate all kinds of things when this is not an easy flow. And you... Sorry, just, just say what you mean by the left turn problem. Well, the problem is, driving on the other side of the road, that in order to navigate a left turn, there needs to be a lot of non-verbal communication as you're seeing vehicles that need one to make way for the other. See, see. Our brains are remarkable in being very flexible and also engaging socially with the other drivers as we either accelerate or stop. Cars cannot do that. And you have all kinds of problems as we're trying to do that. So there are very simple things that I do not think that anyone believes will be resolved over the next five years, perhaps even more when it comes to the traditional driving. But we will have a lot of improvement either in terms of the assisted driving for simple tasks. You're going to park my car and I will have the possibility of having my car parked when I leave it there, both finding the parking space and parking, perhaps in designated areas. You'll also have right now cars on the street that will swerve in order to avoid collision. This is now becoming quasi-standard in a number of high-end cars. So that is the to support uh, the driver. There's different levels of autonomous driving that I think we're going to hear about. And also, and I think that that's a very important uh, point in terms of where it's going to be used, 
it isn't just going to be used for your traditional vehicles where you're driving. I think that the applications of transport are broader, may be industrial, and may not just be for the driver. So, What's the Oxbody view on this? And Michael mentioned these levels. Do you want to just take yeah, us what, through uh, what these levels are? Yeah, I can. I'll take you through the levels, but I'd like to come back to that, that point, if I may. So the levels are level one to five. Five is brain off, if you like. You're not even concentrating. You're not in the vehicle, and it's any A to any B. Right. Level four would be that the vehicle is capable of doing all the safety critical functions in that environment. But there is somebody in the vehicle ready to take over. Okay, so it's kind and of what is level up. three? I mean, don't go level bottom. level three is kind of we don't like to talk about level three because it's a combination of the two when the driver's in the vehicle and is supposed to be ready to take over right. immediately. So that's very hard for a human to do. Our technology roadmap is focused on getting to level five technology on road, any A to any B. But coming back to this point, and this is fundamental to our business plan and what we're trying to achieve is that our software is capable of being deployed in any domain and any environment at any time, day or night. And we talked about not using GPS, so it can be deployed in areas where GPS is not available. So I think if you look at this where the deployment of autonomous vehicles will be, it will start in geofenced, safe, non-public areas, okay, like mines, right. like airports. So we've done a demonstration airside at Heathrow already, in, mm. uh, and that's been done. And if you think about some of these applications, they are huge, mm. and they are huge for a number of reasons. Airports don't particularly want humans airside at airports for lots of really good reasons, safety, security, it's polluted, it's a dangerous, noisy, polluted place to work. And so you'll see the deployment into safe private areas, campuses at universities, for instance, and then you'll see the deployment gradually move on to ultimately you go and buy a car, and that is a long way away, I would agree. OK, so these, these deployments in specific areas, private areas, you know, off the public roads, are already kind of happening, is what you're saying, at least in pilot stages. So they're in pilot stages with safety drivers in the vehicle right now. Okay, so that's what's happening. But we are we are demonstrating in many domains, in mines, in warehouses, inside, outside, airports, as well as roads in urban environments. To some extent, part of the problem is that humans are a little unpredictable and it's easier to have humans interacting with humans right. and machines interacting with machines right. when it comes to the road and there is a possibility that we might be heading to a future with dedicated uh, lanes you know just anecdotally a good friend of mine a senior engineer in google was telling me that part of the driving where they are is becoming more aggressive because there is more autonomous vehicles that are being tried out now autonomous vehicles are remarkably conservative because they don't want to create accidents because they're programmed to do so. So what happens is that you're like, oh, that's an autonomous vehicle. I need to be a little more aggressive. Yeah, Yeah, and I think on that, the other point around this is the technology will be ready before society is ready. So the regulation, the legal aspects of us driving on the road, the safety cases and the safety certification of all of that, how integrated software with hardware become certified safe, you know, for on-road. Those challenges and the insurance industry and all those things have a job to do to make this a reality. And we'll get into the societal issues in in one second, but last question then in terms of the technology. I mean, are there technical obstacles here? In other words, do we now have all the pieces in place and the technology is simply just getting better and faster at, at seeing the world around it and figuring out what's an obstacle and what... 
Yeah, there's, there's still challenges that we face. The technology is not ready to be any drive you or I from any A to any B. It's not ready, but it will get there. We have a roadmap to be able to do that. We have a fantastic team at Oxbotica to, to enable us to do that. So we believe that will happen. The technology will get there. Good. Let us switch gears a little bit to the uh, societal aspects. Michael, we talk a lot about the mobility ecosystem. What, what do we mean by the mobility ecosystem? Uh, well, that is another set of changes. And this is not strictly connected to AI, but it is part of the changes that we have seen. So in the past, what we used to have is in the automobile sector, like in many other sectors, you had a well-delineated set of boundaries. There were people making cars and there were people selling the cars. Then there was a supply chain for the production of cars. You'd buy the car, that'd be the end of it. Perhaps you would lease it, but that's where the complication ended. Now, what happened a few years ago, and that's the result of mobile telephony that has given the possibility of having a different interface in the way that we consume and engage with the world, is that you saw companies like Uber and Lyft, to name two of the most interesting IPOs of the last few years, that said that I'm going to be creating a simple solution to provide mobility on demand. And this is important because it means that rather than you thinking that you will rely either in terms of public services or buses or trains or owning your own car, possibly needing to find a taxi, you will have a very easy and cheaper way of moving around on demand using your phone. So there are people managing mobility, and now the mobility ecosystem is becoming increasingly sophisticated, linking different ways of moving, linking public transport to these companies. And even in the public transport, recently in a panel with a minister of transport of Finland, who are thinking of changing the buses that are running in rural parts on Finland with on-demand services, because otherwise, why would you waste money um, and taxpayer resource to have empty buses running around rather than subsidizing it? So we are rethinking the needs in the public and in the private, and we are creating a web of different players who together offer a service to the customer. Why ecosystem? Because it isn't one company doing everything. If you think about Uber, what it does is it offers the interface and then has hundreds of thousands of drivers that work with it. Now, despite that, it is able to command an astounding price and its stock price may have been down, but despite its massive losses, it's still worth many tens of billions of dollars. Richard, does Oxbotica have a kind of a a vision, as it were, for the future of mobility, transportation? You know, what is a, a city like a London going to look like? Very much so. And I mean, we have a partnership, Oxbotica have a strategic partnership with a company called Addison Lee, who mm -hmm. I'm sure you yeah. all know, one of the biggest land and transport company in the world, to actually work on that. We don't want to do what they do. Right. We're a software company, so they do that bit very well. But it comes back to these partnerships and ecosystems. So we're looking for partners in different sectors. So if you think about our, our autonomy system as being universal autonomy, so it goes in mines, it goes in all these. So we're looking for partners that will take our software into those. Uh, we don't want to be a mining company. We're not a mining company. Same thing with mobility. So absolutely, mobility as a service, the future of mobility. There's lots and lots of studies about autonomy helping with congestion, helping with pollution, and actually 
helping the most needy people become mobile again. So if you think about those people who are unable to drive for health reasons or whatever it is, in the future that these mobility as a service can really, really liberate a whole sector of our society that's not liberated today. Let me just, just emphasise that because I think that one of the reasons that we see this growth in the mobility ecosystem and in many other ecosystems in, an, in a number of sectors is that creating a web of interconnected players is able to cover needs that we were not able to cover before. So what you're seeing is that these new webs of collaboration are focusing on covering areas that we had not done before, which may be better both for the individual customers, whether they are final customers or they are industrial customers, to go back to the examples that we heard, but also for society, because this hopefully is able to address some of the societal challenges and in terms of mobility, whether that is congestion, whether that is pollution, mm. and uh, certainly with the news that we're getting in terms of the sad state of the climate, mm. this is going to become an ever more important priority, or at least so we hope. And indeed, we haven't even talked about electric vehicles, which is frankly a separate conversation, yeah. but it is clear to me that autonomous driving, you can look at it in, in the small way, but you can look at it at a very large societal level and the implications are huge. My my final significant question, people want to know who the winners and losers are going to be here. And obviously this is an industry where you've got you know, huge companies, the BMWs, the Jaguar Land Rovers, the Fords of this world, who are now being disrupted, if you want to use that word, by you know Google, Uber, you name it. How is this going to work out? Should we be selling our shares in the traditional car companies? Let, let me try to, to start that because it may be sl slightly politically sensitive here. I think that you have seen a sea change in terms of how the major players in the industry have responded over the last few years. And when I say a few years, probably five years. So for a long time, the automobile manufacturers felt that they had a good grip on the sector, so much so that they, like many other traditional sectors, were able to only offer what they want and, frankly, abuse the customers. They did not want to interface with telephone companies. They did not want to interface with Google or Apple. Why? Because they felt that this way they maintained strategic control. And I think that what made them really change is the mobility as a service challenge when the stock price of Uber then and even today challenged and perhaps surpassed big companies like BMW. And they said, well, hang on a minute here. We may be missing a trick. And I think that you have seen a dramatic change with most of the traditional automobile manufacturers first invest hundreds of millions if not billions, in companies like Toyota in terms of the mobility services and also being engaged in relationships, building their own mobility ecosystems. So we're seeing... A lot of these collaborations between the, the traditional auto companies and these tech firms, presumably Oxbotic are working with some of these big traditional automotive yeah, so, companies. Uh, so I would say software is the beating heart of right. what's going to happen. It right. is the beating heart of most disruptive technologies that we've right. seen. It's the software, OK? So we are seeing opportunities for smaller organisations like our own yeah. to partner with these giants. And I think it also comes back to the question about how these large organisations innovate themselves right. and the culture of innovation within these large organisations. And I think there is a recognition that they need companies like ours and they benefit from partnering with companies like ourselves who are small, nimble. We have one sole purpose. Right. You know, we are going to create the software that makes vehicles do more. Right. 
And so we, we are able to bring a different kind of approach to solving this problem that may be quicker and it may be better, you know, or right. better off on that. But we are seeing large organisations talking to us and partnering with us for that very reason, that they don't believe they can do it all themselves anymore. And I come back to my initial point. If you move goods or people, wherever you do that in the world, and however you do that in the world, if you're not strategically looking at how are we going to do this in the future, allowing for autonomy happening, and it will happen, then you're going to fail. Okay. It's very clear to me now that all the big traditional auto companies kind of get it, that there's a problem that they need to solve, and it is fascinating, I think, more than any other industry I can think of in the world, you know, to see the old and the world, new world sort of colliding yeah. together in a way that it's pretty much impossible to, to predict exactly who's going to come out ahead here. I'm afraid we have to leave it there. Thank you, Richard Jinks and Michael Jacobides, for a fascinating conversation. Please join us again for more in our podcast series, The Reality of Artificial Intelligence, available on www.london.edu. Thank you.